The Film Comment Podcast is sponsored by Kino Lorber, presenting The Mountain, from director Rick Alverson. Jeff Goldblum stars as a traveling lobotomist in 1950s America who takes a photographer, played by Ty Sheridan, under his wing. In theaters starting July 26th. Pick up your copy of the new issue of Film Comment, with features on Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Jim Jarmusch interviewed by Amy Taubin, and Maddie Diop's Atlantics by Dennis Lim. Plus, an ode to Doris Day by Terrence Davies, United Artists at 100, the acting partnership of Ossie Davis and Ruby Dee, Ari Aster on his Midsummer Inspirations, and much, much more. Support independent, nonprofit film journalism and subscribe today at filmcomment.com. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Nicholas Rapold, the Editor-in-Chief of Film Comment. Many films are widely held to be classics, but we tend to agree upon movies that are a few decades in the past, whether it's Breathless, or McCabe and Mrs. Miller, or Tokyo's Story. A new series at Film at Lincoln Center looks to more recent history with a survey of outstanding debut films from the 21st century so far. That includes Medicine for Melancholy from Barry Jenkins, the director of Moonlight, the Forest for the Trees, from the director of Tony Erdman, Marin Ade, and many more. For the latest film at Lincoln Center Talk, Film Comment put together a critical discussion of these works and their place in cinema. The participants were Florence Almazzini, Associate Director of Programming at Film at Lincoln Center, Eric Hines, Curator of Film at Museum of the Moving Image, Devika Girish, a frequent contributor to Film Comment, and Ashley Clark, Senior Repertory and Specialty Film Programmer at BAM. Let's go to the conversation. So I thought I'd kind of begin with the big picture. Um, the, the name of the series is This is Cinema Now, 21st Century Debut. Uh, and Florence, I wonder if you could just give us the big picture kind of premise of the series and maybe a bit of the, the um, ideas and, and thought that went into picking the particular films. Um, I know there are lots of considerations people aren't always aware of. Um, well, first of all, we, I just wanted to mention that it's a series I curated with two of my colleagues, uh, Dennis Lim and Tyler Wilson. So uh, it's, um, it was definitely a collaboration, a lot of discussion and disagreement at times, but that's what makes uh, interesting shows. Uh, we wanted to create um, a series to celebrate our 50th anniversary. And when you do an anniversary, often the most common thing is just like, oh, look back at the biggest hit of the last 10 years or 20 years. But we also wanted to look, look forward. So we thought that the best way to, to do this and explore like the new cinema was maybe to look at like people that first feature from upcoming filmmakers. And, and then from there, it, it grew to a variety of things because you can look at it as like, some people just made one film and they made an amazing film and this, that's it. It's, it's for a certain reason they can't make a second film. I'm thinking of An Elephant Sixteen Steel, which is probably one of my favorite films of the last few years. But we also just played it so, and, and numerous times, so we, we didn't want to just bring it back, but you know, uh, for lack of space. But then there's also people who make a really interesting first film and then their careers go different ways. Uh, and, and you're not sure if it's someone that you're gonna continue looking forward to, or if it's just like you know some studio films that maybe is not interesting to me. 
so we, we just like combine all these options and um, wanted to put, you know, it's, it's hard to say it's a new canon, um, maybe because of it also sounds quite pretentious, but it's, I think, a lot of films that made a change for us in the way we saw cinema uh, and hopefully for the audience. Um, so that's mm. some of the basic uh, concept to create the show. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So does that mean also mean that the things that would might be considered like one hit wonders are less, of, were less considered because um, it, the, the career is kind of an important part of, of reflecting on the first film? And uh, I think a little bit. I, do, I wouldn't want to eliminate someone who just made one first film and, and you know, then doesn't get to do uh, the, the rest as promising. Um, but so that's why we all had our agreements. We should, we're showing Drift by Elena Whitman. Uh, she hasn't made, she made some short films, but only one feature film. We think she's really talented and promising, but it's, you know, so it's also a decision. It's like, it's something we think is worth uh, watching. And I'm predicting she'll make more great film, but you know, it's just, my hope. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, yeah, that's one thing that's really kind of cool about the series is seeing, you know, first films by Barry Jenkins um, and you know, knowing what he goes on, on to do. I mean, something like Medicine for Melancholy is, or, or, you know, just a, a beautiful film, and it, but, you know, just you, you couldn't even have guessed that he would even take it to another level beyond that. Okay. It, it's interesting to, because it takes, what, a 20-year view, obviously, so you're getting a sense of the landscape of funding and opportunity and I lost count of the amount of times that I would write features about black filmmakers who were stranded on the one feature or one or two. Um, the New York Times recently published a fantastic but quite disturbing and um, troubling article about black filmmakers in the 90s who got stuck on that one film. So it's really interesting to see something like Medicine for Melancholy and you're wondering, that came out I think 2008, nine around about the time Obama's inaugurated, is the kind of the week it comes out. Um, and you're, wait, you're thinking, is he ever gonna make another film? And suddenly his career, thanks to obviously his talent, but also being recognized, his investment, certain climatic shifts. And there's someone like Jordan Peele who comes along and actually, you know, obviously his, his context is a bit different because he's got a huge background in, in Comedy Central. He's a, he's a well-known figure anyway, but he's able to suddenly make films at a, at a rapid rate. He's got lots of irons in the fire. So th this kind of survey is interesting for the broader climate of mm -hmm. funding and opportunity. I think that was one thing I certainly got from looking at the spread of the films. Yeah, I mean, and then you, you know, another name you might mention in, in that regard is, is someone like Marinade. Um, you know, the time span between Forest, Forest for the Trees, which is her debut feature, and then everyone else, which I think was maybe five years after that still, and, and then on the, on the way up to Tony Erdman, which was a film comment cover, um, <laughs> which was another eight years. I guess part of that is just maybe her process, definitely. Um, but it, yeah, it's not like you make a first feature and then things just keep coming every, every other year. Well, what's, it's also interesting to think about the 20th century as a discrete period of time, because it's, mm -hmm. it's a long time. It's nearly 20 years now. Yeah. So then you think, like, I, I was revisiting Forest for the Trees this week, and it feels like from a different era. It certainly speaks to her career and the mm -hmm. films that she made later. You can obviously see what, who she was becoming in that yeah. film, but the sort of aesthetic of it 
feels like a very different moment than we're in now. And the uh, same there's with, a couple of films like that in the series. With Medicine for Melancholy and Funny Haha, they, they remind oh, totally. you of the, the, the mumblecore movement, oh, yeah. which again seems, well, it is a different era completely. Yeah. <laughs> but people from that, like Bujalski, who's gone on to do Support the Girls with um, Regina Hall, mm-hmm. in working in a totally different register. It's interesting to see that development. Totally. Yeah, and I, for me, I mean, I was five at the turn of the century, so the 21st century is basically all I know so far. Um, And so the turn of the century filmmakers in the program are interesting for me because I feel like I've grown up thinking of them as these monuments of cinema. So uh, Apichat Pong, who's um, Mysterious Objects at Noon, actually, I, I watched it today as part of this program, and also Lucrecia Martel, who is like my all time favorite filmmaker right now. They have such great bodies of work that span the last four years that for me, like just growing up as a cinephile, those have been the you know greats. So this program kind of uh, allowed me to put them within sort of a certain context and realize like when they emerged and actually how recent they are if you kind of uh, take in the full scope of film history. And despite that, you know what kind of presence they've created, and and, and actually like how film grades happen or how they emerge. Mm. And especially like Kaylee Blues is partnered with Mysterious Objects in the program and you can just see so much of an influence of Mysterious Objects and just uh, Apichat Pong's style on on Begon's style and there's, and both films feel very original but are still definitely connected by a thread. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's nice to be able, for me to be able to draw those connections and understand sort of the you know, historical processes of film culture, I think. Yeah, I know it's really interesting um, being uh, comparatively ancient um, and, and how films have struck me, you know, of, of these films in, in this lineup are in reaction to like more established conventions rather than, I mean, I would love to experience them as, as like, you know, they're kind of the more primary colors of things, but a lot of them, you know, something like um, the Lysandra Alonso film, um, it, uh, it, you know, that's, that's something where it, it's a film that his films often feel that they're in reaction to, you know, a more linear narrative, uh, you know, that their long takes are in reaction to, you know, whatever, I'll make something up, like rapid cutting of late 90s digital, whatever, whatever, you know, early, early aughts. Um, but it's, so it's nice to see those be, be presented here as more established, more as, more as the primary colors of a different palette instead of just in reaction to things. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, also, it's kind of interesting, you know, we, we, we can say we know what like a 70s film is or we like films from the 70s or like New American Hollywood. I'm wondering what are people's sense of what, what it would mean if you say a film from the 2000s or can we finally get rid of decades entirely, which is my vote. <laughs> I don't know, throw that to the... One thought that came to my mind, I, I don't have a definitive answer. I think this program is like proof that there is no such thing and there were some films that were not on the program and I was like wondering why they weren't and I would look them up and they were they came out like you know late 1999 or something and so it is you know this kind of work always has to be a little bit arbitrary I guess. We we had a few 99 but we were like trying to push (laughs) down. You need to stop somewhere. No it's just yeah I mean but it's something different. You just give yourself boundaries sometimes otherwise 
you know, we could do you a show for a six boundary. months. <laughs> you give yourself a boundary and you see what that does. You know? so <laughs> yeah, it doesn't yeah. have to be it's like no, law. No. It's just something yeah. to, to... It's, it's, it's true. Also, there's a few times we're like, oh, it's a great first film. I'm like, oh, that was a second film. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I had those too. Yeah, well, you, you kind of wanted to forget the first one. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but, sorry. Oh, no, go for it. Oh, I, I was just going to say, I mean... Um, these are not necessarily my favorite films in the series, but a couple of films that kind of stood out to me nostalgically were Primer and Donnie Darko, mm -hmm. because I think when I was young and I sort of like became a cinephile, you know, in the first decade of the 21st century, because that's when I grew up and, and was a teenager and I didn't grow up in America. And so um, these were kind of gateway films, I think. Those were the films that were kind of getting popular enough um, either because of some kind of star presence or because of the internet. Um, but, and, but you know, we're not sort of festival or art house. And so I think for a lot of people in my generation, they were maybe like these gateway films that, you know, uh, made us seek out more cinema. And these films have been described as like puzzle narratives or network narratives, um, films that sort of, I think, coincided with the rise of home video. Uh, and also, of, you know, I think many people my age became cinephiles through internet forums, especially if you didn't live in a place where you had a lot of access to, you know, physical institutions of film culture. And these are films that really lent themselves well to forum or internet discussions mm. and explanations and, and breakdowns and, and sharing and downloading, that sort of thing. So those definitely, like, struck me as, like, early as exemplary of a certain like trend of early aughts filmmaking, but I mean, I wouldn't say that they, you know, uh, are characteristic of the whole breadth of filmmaking. Um, I was gonna respond from, a, from an aesthetic perspective in that um, Bamboozled, which is obviously a film I've written about a hell of a lot and watched way too many times, um, I believe was the first film to be shot, the first studio film to be shot on consumer grade digital film. So there's a real aesthetic shift that's marked that turn of the century thing. So there's a lot of, um, there's a trend, trend towards digital cinematography and then obviously changing in editing patterns, um, which, which I think marks this, this millennium so far in terms of yeah. the filmmaking. Um, and that, you, you know, you get the dying embers of 35 being the, the standard. There are a fair few films shot on 35 in this program, but I think of like Donnie Darko, for example, which is beautiful, but there is obviously that shift to digital. And you have filmmakers like Began doing Kaylee Blues and um, Long Day's Journey into Night as well, which I believe is high grade digital. And he's, you know, he's being lauded as a wonderful cinematographer. It's not about film versus digital anymore so so those kind of conversations are yeah. interesting to me yeah for sure and i mean another thing that comes to mind with with the, the donnie darko and, and primer pairing is the idea of a cult film you know i mean those those are definitely two cult films i mean i, I feel like each of those had their life at the pine now rest in peace the pioneer theater for example you know um you know you could go there and see donnie darko have its second and third and fourth lives um and i'm kind of wondering aloud how much do cult films exist like are, are they able to be nurtured in the same way do they, can they exist in the same way i don't know <laughs> it's a stump stump the eye. maybe us is is a way to pick this up yeah because i think get out is notable for being such a tight 
focused mm -hmm. debut, like thematically and aesthetically. And I was really interested to see where Jordan Peele would go next. And instead of refining, he went completely the other way into this L, kind of L. Ron Shyamalan fantasy land of... Um, <laughs> That's, that combines M. Night and L. Ron. Yeah, um, kind of multiple interpretations. It seemed to be us, as much as I enjoyed it, it seemed to be a film almost engineered for a cult afterlife mm -hmm. to be discussed on, on forums. Right. So I think maybe there's a sense of, there's an intentionality to, to culthood yeah. these days. Yeah, I would agree because with that. of because of the, the way that films enter into the online space and mm -hmm. how people how filmmakers know they're going to be received and the way that certain marketing and distribution companies will will frame a film in a way that begs for it to be discussed according to certain ideological pathways maybe yeah it's also it's when you when you focus on debuts like this it's hard not to that which is a wonderful thought process is to then think about follow-up films is mm -hmm. to think about what sophomore films are like and what the sophomore film does to how we think about the debut film and so you think about us in relation to get out and yeah. that kind of choice to get a little bit wilder with a second film which i always respect that choice because mm -hmm. um, it's not about like here i am i'm one film into my auteurist campaign mm -hmm. and my second film is going to refine that thing that can also be wonderful but i actually really respect when a filmmaker goes that direction and i also think about um uh, Colas Regadas with Japon is, a, is, a, is an amazing debut film. So assured, like it's almost, it's almost, it, it kind of like, I, I, we showed, we did a Carlos Regadas retrospective recently at the museum and, and reading through reviews of Japon was fascinating because everybody like from the first was almost resentful of Japon. It was resentful of like, what are you doing? How could you be this accomplished? Why are you being Tarkovsky? Like, like what are you doing trying to be Tarkovsky? Who else is trying to be Tarkovsky, let alone trying to be the Mexican, you know, like, like sexual provocateur within that, you know, like so, but so then you look at Battle in Heaven, which is like, it gets wild and wilder, you know? Um, and so, I don't, not to go off of debut, but I, it, it invites that, that thought process of like, where do they go next? What's next? And even something like Donnie Darko leads to a, a much wilder second choice. <laughs> and third. <laughs> and third, yeah. Yeah, I mean, what's also nice is seeing, with debut films is seeing filmmakers who are making the film almost as if they're not sure they will make, ever make one again. <laughs> it's like it's all or nothing. Yeah. It's kind of like with novelists. Sometimes like the first novel is just like, this is everything. Well, that's <laughs> what, I was looking through the list to see how many were actually oh, consistent with the idea of a debut novel, maybe autobiographical, or which mm -hmm. ones are about people the same age as the filmmaker. Oh, yeah. it's, it's interesting to look through. I was thinking about Sorry to Bother You mm -hmm. as, as a particular mm -hmm. example of a yeah. film that just... Boots Riley's like, I might not get another shot at this, so I'm going to make 17 films in one. 11 of them are going to nail it. Right. You know, and it really it has that kind of energy to it that's really yeah. bursting. Yeah. And that also plays into discussions of who is able to make films, you know, who, who is, um, who's assured of their next film, who has the benefactor, who is part of the system and who isn't. It mm -hmm. just invites um, a systemic critique, which is, I think, really interesting as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and, and a number of these films from the 2000s, they, they did exist more in a festival space, which, which is, was e felt even more, felt more removed then, I think, than it does now, maybe. I think maybe there's a bit more cross-pollination a little bit, um, and availability, definitely. Some of these films would show, and then you're not sure where you would see them again after they were shown in a particular festival afterwards. Mm -hmm. um, like, I mean, yep, for the, the Regattas movie, I mean, 
I mean, it, that's relatively recently that's been out on a DVD <laughs> in, sure. in, in, a, in a region one DVD, totally. DVD um, which is insane. <laughs> yeah, but it's true, a lot of these films, when we, you know, when I saw Forest for the Tree, I was like, well, that's it. Where am I going to see Forest for the Tree again? I'm like, well, I'll see it if I program it. <laughs> um, so, yeah. but there's a lot of films we have, and, and have shown before, like like when they just came out, like Forest for the Tree or sure. Mysterious Subject at Noon. Or, well, that one's um, I'm just going to say yeah, that one's was, particularly lucky because film yeah. movement still yeah. exists. So you yes. can actually book mm -hmm. that film from the indie distributor. That Well, if we, uh, at the time, I think we got it from her directly. From her to the right. Yeah, sure. um, yeah, yeah, it was... But just, there's, there's a lot of films from yeah, that era mm -hmm. that the distributors are long gone. Oh, so yeah, no, I know. It's also a way to eliminate certain films. Sure, you can't show them because you just <laughs> can't find anything. I mean, we, I think we got everything, but it was yeah. uh, sometimes a little bit difficult. And you had to ask the filmmaker if you were lucky to know them. Um, yeah. Or sometimes you can find the material, but you can't find the rights. Right. Yeah. It's owned by someone's uncle who hates their <laughs> nephew. <laughs> And it can be a bit of a wild goose chase, but that's part of the fun of programming, I yeah. think. Oh, yeah. And uh, frustration. That's, that's definitely the most fun part, is when you can't show the phone. Yeah. <laughs> when you're on the phone to someone's uncle for two hours. <laughs> that's why we do this. Uh, actually, I'm just curious, well, well, what's an example of a film that you just couldn't get your hands on for the, for the series? Oof. Um, I, think we, I think we ended up getting all the points we wanted, okay. but... Um, there was a few that was a little touch and go where okay. um, yeah. we changed formats, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that yeah. type of thing. So, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I, I think one other way of viewing the series is also um, thinking about what could be uh, added to it and, and um, um, not to say it's missing anything because there are different factors <laughs> well, to go yeah. into it. But <laughs> Six I was, months. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'm, 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 I'm curious. Like, sorry to bother you is, is not... Uh, you know, is, is something that would come to mind as well. Um, but I, Eric and I were talking a little bit before, and I'm I'm curious, Eric, what would you add? <laughs> I feel like I'm designated for this. And this is a, this is boring for everyone involved. Um, but because my job at Film Common is to write about documentaries, one has to sort of bring up the idea that there are no documentaries in the series. Yeah. Um, and you know, from you know, the sort of like the boring comment that I'll make is that's half of cinema for the 21st century, so it's strange to not see it. I know very well the two of you care. He's absolutely deep. furious, by the way. I'm you can't tell. <laughs> I know the so two of you care deep, deeply about documentaries. Dennis has an entire festival yes, de dedicated absolutely. to this, so this is not about that. Um, and f Although I should say there are certain films in here that have been programmed right. in documentary festivals, even though that yeah. may not be their primary definition. But um, but yeah, I mean, I've, I've spent the last couple of days sort of racking my brain thinking about those films, too, and how yeah. um, I think, when I think about 21st century, Whatever the fact, whatever I write about aside, I do think that there's some significant films yeah. in that area. Well, I mean, what's interesting also is how I think um, documentary realism has become part of the way we talk about films, and authenticity has been in the past, you know, 15, 20 years more so than say in the preceding 10 to 15 years. Um, the idea of how, you know, a, a, you know, idea of like gritty realism or something, what that meant in like the 70s is very different from what the expectations for that are now and, and how documentary now influences that or, or doesn't. Um, you know, everything from the look of the film to the dramatic expectations, narrative expectations, to the beats that a film might have, even characterization. Um, so, I mean, in a way, like, documentary is, you know, shadowing a lot of these, these films that, that are in here. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I, 
That's something I really noticed about the program. Like so many of the films um, employ documentary strategies oh. or elements, or like you said, could be you know classified as either depending mm -hmm. on the program or how docufictional like Oxide, and then films like Nana and Drift employ. Human surge is often uh, yeah yeah mm -hmm. um, and and yeah the and La Libertad the mm -hmm. uh, Alonso film um, they involve fictionalization and reenactment and I, I don't I'm not quite sure how all of those filmmakers would classify their work but so many of these films employ those strategies of trying to capture trying to get at something mm -hmm. of the real duration the real space the real movement of things um, using certain strategies that we might mm -hmm. associate with documentary and. I'm curious, you know, what you'd say, like, why that is such a big part of these defining 21st century debuts, or, or you know, if you've noticed something um, socially or culturally that's, that can explain this, I guess. That's, I mean, that's, there's a lot to go into that answer or to that provocation. Um, I don't know that I could come up with a... Uh, an answer on the spot to speak to that, but I guess one of the things that I could speak that could speak to that is something that I was thinking about just before in the idea of 21st century, in the way that this sort of incredible like expanse of time of 20 years, mm -hmm. if we did the same experiment and say, what if there was a what if there was a series that incorporated both the 60s and the 70s combined? Yeah. It's sort of almost similar in terms mm -hmm. of like what that would encompass. And I think that there is actually this, like, this rough comparison between the aughts and the 60s in some ways, and the teens and the 70s in terms of some of the arc of these filmmakers. And I think documentary speaks to this as well. You look at the sort of um, uh, the techn technological advancements of the 60s that led to a certain type of hybrid filmmaking, um, mm -hmm. an approach to reality and documentary in a certain moment that that seemed really vital. And then that winds up being an aesthetic mm. in the 70s. And it kind of makes its way into the 70s into a, in a different, a different expression. And I think that in terms of digital video and the explosion of digital video and the audio and the aughts and what that means to documentary filmmaking, but then also what it means to independent filmmaking and how independent filmmaking, that sort of sense of fly by the seat of your pants, make a film for no money, inevitably has this sort of imprimatur of, of reality. Um, and I think that's a really mm -hmm. important part of the aughts which is not necessarily the same aesthetic that happens in the teens. And so, I don't know, like, that's, the, that's where my brain went a little bit in thinking about what you're talking about in terms of um, notions of reality. But I think that those notions of, the re of reality are related to technology and related to how films are made and what you can actually accomplish using that technology. The Film Comment Podcast is sponsored by Kino Lorber, presenting The Mountain. The new film from Rick Alverson, director of The Comedy and Entertainment, stars Jeff Goldblum as a traveling lobotomist in 1950s America, who takes a young photographer, played by Ty Sheridan, under his wing. Hannah Gross, Denis Lavant, and Udo Kier also star. Esquire says it boasts shades of Stanley Kubrick and Yorgos Lanthimos, even as it carves out its own peculiar, penetrating identity. The Mountain opens July 26th in New York and Los Angeles, before expanding to select cities. Pick up your copy of the new issue of Film Comment, with features on Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Jim Jarmusch interviewed by Amy Taubin, and Maddie Diop's Atlantics by Dennis Lim. Support independent, nonprofit film journalism, and subscribe today at filmcomment.com. Yeah, and I mean, this is a kind of thing that happened in, in, uh, ha happens in, in hist throughout history in a way. I mean, if you think of the way the French New Wave, or you know, something like Breathless has a kind of run-and-gun quality to it that, you know, 
you know, kind of is, is similar in some ways to some cinema verite movies of, of, of the 60s. And, you know, Raoul Coutard, you know, uh, took some inspiration from those movies. So those sort of echoes, it seems to go back and forth. You know, there's a sort of dialogue that continues. Um, but another thing comes to mind uh, in terms of, you know, broadly speaking trends is this idea of an ex exploding narrative, you know, just kind of um, whether that means like with mysterious object, piling on stories and, and kind of outsourcing the stories to other people or having the illusion of outsourcing. So you're telling many stories one after another, so you're not privileging one over the others. Um, uh, or the, the extraordinary stories, the, the Yunus, I don't, I don't know how to pronounce his name. Maria, yeah, Yunus movie. Um, you know, just this idea that you have serial narratives, one going on at top of the other, um, is one direction, uh, which is a kind of narrative flor floridness or something, and putting that alongside the openness of a documentary style, like the Lissandra Alonso one, where it's, it feels like it's, it's happening in front of you, but it's also totally open because the narrative is not entirely clear to you where it's gonna go. So just these two different types of openness maybe are a couple of things that come to mind looking at some of these films. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. It's definitely something I was also noticing, like. I was just saying this, um, I think this sort of preoccupation with duration seems to be mm -hmm. a feature in a lot of these films yeah. and it takes so many different forms from the long take in Kaylee Blues um, and you know, different in Drift, this sort of sequence that is, consists entirely of, ocean, of the ocean. Um, and then even in the Martel film, La Cienaga, in a different way, it's sort of, what I find interesting about that film is it is, I think, even though it's a narrative film, it is kind of narr indescribable narratively and it has no sort of centrality. It's, its narrative is so diffused among various characters and it's very hard to take, you know, tell what's going on when and who's supposed to be the main character. And so, um, and that film also concerns with this like hot summer and being mm -hmm. stuck in this place in this hot summer with more and more people and how that's kind of unraveling uh, relationships between these people. And I, I, I wonder, I mean, I, this is not an original point, but definitely, you know, the, the proclivity towards duration can be like a reaction against other kinds of filmmaking that are very popular right now, which tend towards the other direction with uh, very fast rapid cuts and also with more you know superhero and CGI laden filmmaking I say that com completely in a neutral tone um, <laughs> you know the, there's also like I feel like there's not as much care or attention paid to composition or um, sort of the idea of capturing the space and time together in, in some sort of um, I wouldn't say authentic but in some, some sort of engaged way that takes a craft and care and so I wonder if I, I, I was wondering if that trend might be you know in, in reaction to other trends that um, is, is a good point it makes me think of duration as related to stillness and I think of unrelated in this program which is Joanna Hogg's first film um, which obviously she just kind of hit big with the souvenir which came out this year did anybody see the souvenir Hands up if you like the souvenir still. <laughs> Good. Even if you haven't seen it, you can just say you liked it. No, um, <laughs> it's, it, when it's coming up here, right? Presume. Yeah. 
Or is it screened already? No, no, unrelated. Oh, unrelated. Uh, anyway, it's it, I think it's tomorrow. No? Yeah, make sure you see this. Um, and it's a film of real care and attention to, to class and social immobility. It, like a lot of her films, it foregrounds the British class system. Obviously speaking on the day that Boris Johnson becomes our <laughs> prime minister and, and the vagaries of the British... I can't believe it take, it's taking you this long to bring that up. <laughs> <laughs> Be gentle with me, Eric. This is... Um, but, you know, in a, in a, in a, on a day that the British class system is foregrounded in a particularly vicious way, her films do that in a very very subtle but, but clear way as well. The characters are upper class, they act as such, and, and, and I think that the stillness and the observation of, of her films allow that to breathe. Yeah. I must confess, personally, I was kind of put off. It took me a long time to get around to her films, because I thought, I just don't want to watch these posh people, I, I can't deal with this. Um, and then I saw the souvenir, I, I'm just being honest, like I'm, just, I'm not interested in these people. Um, and then I saw the souvenir at Sundance, and I thought, okay, I've messed up here, you know, I've, I've really been missing out on something and gone through and subsequently watched her films back to back and to, you know, we talk about someone minting a style, I think she gets more and more confident in, mm. in stillness, what she leaves out of the frame. There's an incredible sequence in Unrelated, which is the story of um, uh, an unmarried woman um, who goes on holiday in Tuscany with, with her friends. Um, her boyfriend is supposed to go with her, but decides at the last minute not to, not to come. So she spends the entire film trying to get hold of him on the phone. Okay. Um, and she ends up essentially trying to romance a very young Tom Hiddleston, yeah. who plays a character, what's his name, Oakley or something? <laughs> something Oakley. ridiculous, Oakley, yeah. Um, and it's this excruciating study of this woman kind of being brave and going out of her comfort zone, but nobody else is, is giving. Yeah. And there's an amazing e explosive row between Oakley and his alcoholic dad, mm -hmm. which takes place entirely off screen. So you've got all these um, repressed English people sitting around a pool like this. <laughs> and there's a screaming row happening off In screen. And it goes, them, yeah. it seems like it goes on forever. <laughs> and you're just thinking of the confidence to keep that off screen yeah. and to see that transmuted up to the point now where she's at the souvenir and she's announcing the sequel in the credits. <laughs> you know, um, it's yeah. a beautiful thing to see a filmmaker develop and just begin with something and then mm -hmm. grow in confidence to be even more spare with, with information, to trust the audience. Yeah. Um, Unrelated is definitely one of my favorite films in this series. Yes, and it shows tomorrow afternoon and July 29th here. Um, yeah, no, I mean, that's also a great example of a filmmaker where, yeah, it took me a while to catch uh, to catch on to it as, as well. I, I, and And... For everyone, too, in a way, like it's absurd that I think, I think uh, the two films after that, the first first week runs they were given, were were here like a couple of years after the fact almost, and it was just insane that no one thought they were at all viable or didn't want to take a chance on one of them, um, and then the souvenir like, will you know, it's my top whatever five for this year easily, you know, so that's a, that's a shame. I mean, were there other other films in this list that you felt you missed? missed out on or missed the first time around. I mean, I will freely say that when I did see Mysterious Object first, I saw it at Anthology Film Archives, um, and I was five years old, actually, as well. Um, and I, I, I thought it was interesting, but I didn't, I didn't get it. I can't say I saw, like, in a nutshell, this amazing talent that he, you know, he, he was. Um, and 
Yes, <laughs> my bad. Um, but you know, that's it's just interesting. You are not always able to perceive it. I guess I'm saying I can admit that critics are not, uh, you know, infallible. You heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> but again, I was like three or four years old. I was a, basically a toddler. I wasn't even speaking at that point. I think. You don't like the storytelling within the storytelling. You just wanted one story. Yeah. <laughs> No, I think it's a movie I loved right away when I saw it. I oh, yeah. felt totally mesmerized by it. Um, mm. The visual of it and the guts he had to, to go in that direction. But I remember specifically when I showed it, it was a, I was working at BAM at the time and mm -hmm. I did a show with Dennis who was at The Village Voice and it was, we felt it was our film and we were presenting it and we felt that movie is quite something. And it, it did yeah. stay. I mean, I, f I think sometimes it's, I wouldn't say it's luck, but when you really f fall in love with a movie and you get obsessed with it, you, you do want to follow the director. But I, mm. I don't think I would have guessed he would become such an iconic filmmaker and yeah. also, but yeah, yeah. I, I did see something there right away. I, I yeah. loved it, yeah. yeah. No, I mean, then there was Tropical Malady, definitely on board. Everything was brilliant. Um, but Mysterious Object, another movie that was really hard to see. I think there was sort of a weird, good but weird unusual one-off like dvd release by some outfit called plexafilm i want to say that was like a weird little dvd thing i have somewhere but uh um so good to see here uh as well um were there any films that you felt betrayed like filmmakers you felt betrayed by oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> like you loved the first film Completely. and then <laughs> and any of them in the, in the program there's some whose first film i liked more than what they made afterwards uh -huh. um I have to say, I love Medicine for Melancholy. And I think that's my favorite film by Barry Jenkins. Um, not that I don't love the other one, but I really felt this one was maybe even more personal in the way I viewed it. Um, but yeah, that's a stretch to say that I don't like his other film, but there's probably other people that, yeah, I'm like, why? <laughs> it's so I, I, much promises. I think it's, <laughs> we, we fall in love with um, filmmakers and we fall in love with films and yeah. to fall in love with a first film is a really special thing because mm -hmm. I think it feels very much, uh, there, I think there's a different sense of connection and belonging to that. And therefore I do think that sense of being betrayed is a very special thing because they're not betraying us. They're making what they want to make. But there is that, I think, but there is that real emotional uh, reaction. Like, no, you didn't do the thing that I thought uh, you I had those are expectations for you and you yeah. went in this direction. Um, yeah, of course, it, it does happen. Um, yeah. I mean, for, I think, everyone. Were. Yeah. But and cinema is so personal, too, because it's the mm -hmm. way you saw the film the first time, too, where you relate to this. And, and then there are also films that kind of rub you the wrong way and then you realize, oh, that's actually a good thing. Like, Framland. <laughs> you know, I was gonna, that was the movie. I, like, that movie, I was like, ah, it's just a movie that makes your kind of skin crawl because it's following a, beyond an anti-hero, an, an unhero. I mean, I don't know, just this guy who's just uncomfortable in his skin and makes everyone around him uncomfortable in his skin. And then I realized this is perfect because this is like the antidote to every bad mumblecore movie because this is like, what if we followed someone who was not endearingly awkward, but just was unbearable? <laughs> and I love him, and you, I love it watching him and, and just seeing him through his, his, his path through life. Uh, but that, yeah, Frownland, another, I don't know, interesting thing in the series. But we hope that uh, Ronnie will make another film yeah. soon, because that's been quite a while, and I think it's an extraordinary yeah. debut. Yeah. But he's, he's been co-writing uh, writing yeah. films mm -hmm. um, for this afternoon, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Just one, one quick point. Um, yeah. 
which is almost like a, a plea to come and see stuff at the cinema, which is related to something like The Human Surge, which um, is an incredible immersive experience. Um, it, of, a lot of the language of technology, it's very porous with its boundaries, but it's a tough watch, I think it's fair to say. And I remember trying to watch it on, on my laptop and be, becoming quite easily distracted by it, and then watching it in a theatre, and you know, even though it's a film about internet culture and connect, global connectivity, it really benefits from being seen on a big oh. screen where your, your concentration is, is absolutely unbroken. So obviously there's a range of, of ways in which we can consume media, but there's still nothing can beat coming to the cinema. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I want to add Drift to that mm. uh, list as well. And I, I, I think it's great that films like Drift and Nana are programmed here because these films are meant to be seen in the theater. They're, they can be hard to watch, I think, outside <laughs> of the theater. And these are the sorts of debuts that otherwise people might not be able to watch that easily or inclined that easily unless they were showing somewhere nearby. And I saw Drift, I think, the first time as new directors, new films. And actually, like, I fell asleep during it for a little bit, w during the ocean sequences. But, you know, it really enriched my experience of the film because it just lulled me into this beautiful trance-like, you know, sleep state, which is kind of the mood of the film. Um, and so even though I would never proudly proclaim having fallen asleep at a film, that is one where I think I really benefited from that nap. I woke up a new person. Um, and then like revisiting, obviously, I appreciated it more and more. But I, that experience just is, you know, I, I like remember it in my bones. And so I urge everyone to see that film here. The, the rejuvenating powers of, of <laughs> cinema. Um, we're we are sort of running toward the last uh, section of this, but so I want to make sure we get any questions from the audience. If anyone wants to pipe in, um, if you if you could just wait, I think we have someone with a oh yeah a mic uh, yeah so yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so listening to you talk about what criteria you used for what films to pick, I get I, I figure I, I get now why some of my favorites weren't selected because they weren't. <laughs> like Save the Green Planet, like that guy didn't make, he made two movies I think since then that weren't very good and the guy who directed Miller Coors didn't make a second feature, but I'm more confused now have, having heard your criteria about why you didn't include The Chaser. I had The Chaser on my first list. However, <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean we do have a limitation in, in, in space world because we, we only had 10 days to do the show. Um, and other films we are showing, either we showed them very recently, oh. or either we're gonna show them um, very soon. Um, for Save the Green Planet, we are working on a show on um, the Korean um, wave from the 80s and 90s, and we, um, we are going to show it. I mean, I love Save the Green Planet. So it was, you know, sometimes there's things that just got eliminated just because we're going to show it right after. Oh. Um, so it's not because it wasn't a great debut. Uh, and The Chaser I really liked, so I, I had it on the list for a long time, and then we just ended up not having enough space. And so, I'm, uh, I'm also, well, I'm right now, the film, the Japan Society is doing their um, Japan Cut series, and uh -huh. every year they make it a point to show uh, films from female directors, and so they've shown a fair number of debuts from female directors who've, a lot of them have gone on to make, you know, good second features, and I think including a couple of those, you know, mm -hmm. debuts by female Japanese directors would have 
you know, it's not just showing films by female directors, but also yeah. it, they, it show, it's part of an interesting trend in the last 20 years in Japanese mm -hmm. independent filmmaking, you know? No, I mean, I, I agree. It's, um, it, we could have had a little more like diversity in terms of uh, regions and, and, and gender, um, but yeah, it just, um, it didn't happen. But maybe we'll try to be more conscious of this um, for the next show. from the audience or, or Ash did you want to say something no. I mean I was, I was just going to say I mean you, you have, you have the, something to say I'm sure the, the <laughs> individual pairings is, is a is a driving force of this as well the way that mm -hmm. films play with sure. each other yeah. so that's, sure. mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, that's, a, that's a different criterion other than just this is a film it's, we want to show yeah. mm -hmm. uh, this, this reminds me of one other thing I guess that one can say about the program that I think reflects yeah. part of what's special about the 21st century uh, debuts is the internationalism of of the of the series, it's uh, it, could, it could there could even be even more from 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 more nations. It's impossible to kind of capture just how much I think cinema, I mean, exploded or expanded it. And this is something that Film Comet tried to keep up with a bit more in the two thousands um, and and late nineties. Um, that's definitely so. So consequently, you might see fewer American films, let's say, in this in this in this selection, um, which I don't disagree with. I mean, we, we always want to show a lot of yeah. international cinema yeah. a little bit because it's harder to have access to it on the big screen yeah, uh, and exactly. a lot of other venues are there to show American cinema. Yeah, yeah. They, it plays more, so I, I think we try a little harder to yeah. get outside. But you know. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Um, I'm not oh, dissing the American cinema no, no, yeah. at all. No, nor was I, nor was I. Uh, there a was a question here on the right. Hi, it's, this is more of a um, comment than a question because um, I ended up spending all my Saturday at the theater and then like a lot of times um, for this series because I really appreciate showing the first features, but not only just first features, like the pairing mm -hmm. of the film, that was the unique uh, characteristic of this program. I'm really um, thankful for that thoughts and I'm curious about like how that thought an idea came to you and the programmers. So you were here like this past Saturday? Yeah, the entire day. Yeah, I, I wanted to come. It was, uh, it, was a great, it was a great day, I think, on Saturday. Um, I think we tried to, when we were thinking of the pairing, it's not necessarily like that the theme is too much or the style. It's just how the, the film uh, talk to each other and how you watch one film and it makes you think um, a, differently about the other film, you know, like, um, it's, it's different when you just watch one film, but when, so the pairing was very, it's tricky because sometimes you're like, oh, it's so fun, it's like the same actor, it totally works, and then you're like, no, it actually makes no sense. It's two films I want, I want to see back to back, and I want to enjoy them together. Um, so that's how we were like thinking about it. So it means you have to rewatch everything. Some films, you know, it's like I've, I haven't seen them since they came out. So it's like I remember really liking this, but does it work this, with this film? So it was the way we were like discussing it internally. Uh, but I'm glad you you had a good day. <laughs> I imagine there's there's so many possibilities because I was thinking yeah. Funny Haha -ha could definitely go with Medicine for Melancholy, yeah. mm -hmm. but. 
At the moment, I think watching uh, Damien Chazelle's and Barry Jenkins' first features together mm -hmm. has like a special kind of ring to it. So, yeah, I mean, I, I assume, I imagine it's a difficult task and you could do this program eight different ways. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I'm sure if we were doing it now, we would probably do something different. So, yeah. uh, just one, one pairing, I just wanted to double check because it's, it was so, I don't know, cool. I, I, maybe I thought I dreamt it. Um, but, but the pairing of La Cienega with Oxhide, I thought was just remarkable, like a deconstruction of the family <laughs> and the family snapshot, the family portrait. Um, and um, there was just one, one, one more other pairing here. Um, well, this is, I guess, um, broadly speaking, um, Neighboring Sounds and, and um, Fan oh, oh, Fantasma, the uh, João Pedro Rodriguez movie. Also another interesting pairing. There's so many movies we're not even getting to here, so don't just take our word for it. Now, these are the you know, 21st century debuts. We are announcing them with complete authority. No other <laughs> films right, right. shall be described as a great 21st century debut. In fact, fourth. Yeah, we burnt, we burnt the film reels of all the ones that we didn't show, just to kind of make sure. I think you have to take a stand in you know, this day and age. <laughs> that's, that's, that's right. Um, and another other question from the audience or comment? Down here on the left here. Oh, yeah. Oh. yeah. <laughs> Intermission music. Hello. I usually don't like the mic, so this is a good uh, volume. Uh, my name is Jeje. Um, I'm also artist and filmmaker. Um, I tend to uh, make a lot of films about underrepresented communities and people. I made a film and play about um, recently about five ex-Hasidic women who are struggling with their custody battles and are excommunicated from their neighborhoods here in Brooklyn for being gay. And it's called L'Chaim de Dykes. Um, ha ha ha, I guess you get it. Um, but as much as I know these people and their communities and struggle, you know, and I went to school for media and gender studies, um, I grapple with the ethical question of how to properly represent them in front of an audience that has not seen them before. You know, there are films out there like Disobedient that really exoticized Hasidic women and really doesn't affirm their story. Um, whether it's trans, black, whatever, minorities are still watered down and twisted in order for it to be appealing. So something that I struggle with, which I'm asking is, um, what do you feel is the right balance of representing um, a community or a person that is not seen? And obviously, how can you do that without having to, let's say, Americanize it too much? Like. I had a lot of professors who was like, oh, no one's gonna understand this uh, Yiddish pun or this Hebrew thing. And I'm like, but that, that's erasing their story. So I had to do it half-half because I feel like if I didn't Americanize it, people won't be able to listen or understand. And that's the problem we face now, that there's a lot of people who need to conform their story in order for the public to listen. And there's so many languages and people that are not humanized as people, and we don't get to see them every day on screen. And I am always consciously thinking, what could I do to represent them in their full humanity? So whatever your thoughts are on that. I mean, I guess I, I can only really answer that question from the perspective of a programmer. Um, and I think the number one um, responsibility of a programmer is to represent the artist 
properly to serve the artist. It's like being in the service industry, but for filmmakers to make sure that their vision is um, contextualized and represented in the correct way. So for, for my practice, it just means building relationships with filmmakers, um, taking that step to actually go meet, meet for coffee, talk, um, sound out filmmakers for, uh, about what their um, expectations and insecurities are. Um, it can be down to anything from, will a film have subtitles? Ask, you know, if it's, if it's, will it other the community? Are subtitles really necessary? Um, how much does commerce and capital play into that? Are you worried about alienating an audience by um, not having subtitles because they can't, they might not be able to understand anything, but is that a, a racist projection? So all of these things are kind of crucial to the ethical discussion of how you work with and serve an artist. So I think it's just being receptive and always understanding, um, speaking personally as a programmer, as a, as a presenter, that I'm there to serve the artist's vision and I have to be sensitive to what they are sensitive about. And that is obviously a very different thing. Programming takes many forms. Sometimes it's as simple as um, emailing a studio, Universal or, or Paramount, clearing the rights, booking a DCP. Other times it's working directly with a filmmaker who's on their first or second film. Um, and we, we wear many different hats. Sometimes if you develop a relationship with a filmmaker, you're actively engaged in, in feedback. You know, you, you develop that trust where they will show you an, an early cut or an early draft of the, of the film. Um, and I think that's, that's all part of it. And I think it's just about um, making sure that you're sensitive to, to the filmmaker's perspective. Um, and I, I could add a little bit to that. Um, I can't really speak to filmmaking, but I just finished a journalism degree and this is a question that comes up a lot. If you want to, you want to do important stories and stories about underrepresented or underreported communities, but you also want to be sensitive and represent them right. And I don't have an answer to this question, but three things that I have found that are, are useful is, um, first of all, making sure that the story is about them and not you. And so just making sure that their voice or experience is the star of the story, which, you know, is, I think some films do fail in that respect. And then using, not using, but um, letting your subjects be your source of knowledge to the extent that they want. Um, in the sense that, like, I, I was doing this project on these communities in India, um, these uh, oppressed caste communities in India, and their history is not very well recorded, you know, because of their status in India over years. And so oftentimes the history that is available in books or online is written by people who don't have actual lived experience of those communities. So making sure that I was fact-checking everything with them uh, to the extent that it was possible. Um, and I think I forgot the last thing, but, oh yeah, and the third thing was making sure that just the film or the piece of writing isn't the only form of activism I engage in. So if I'm working with these communities, finding other ways to organize with them or contribute to their cause beyond just making a film that you know I could get bylines or success out of. So those are just some things that I've noticed might help. Yeah, I mean, I, I think specificity of any sort is, is, is really, really important. And I, I think that's also something the films in this selection do is that they, they don't try to thematize what they're talking about very often. It sort of organically arises out of what, what they're presenting. Um, and they are all very highly specific. Oh, we have another question. Yes, please. I'm happy to stop babbling.
yeah, uh, just there was a topic you touched on earlier that I wanted to find out if, if any of you have more to talk about. And that was, you did mention that a lot of these films, and it's, it's been a characteristic of the last couple decades, uh, these filmmakers are aiming at the international festivals when they make their films. Now in the 80s and 90s, I was involved in festivals where we were doing the North American premiere of many films from outside the US. Those films were all being made for their domestic audience first. And so the question I'm coming at is, are we seeing now in these in this generation, filmmakers are aiming their films at a different audience, um, aiming at an international audience, aiming at a film festival audience, where before a lot of these filmmakers, if they'd gotten their start 20, 30 years earlier, their films would have definitely been aimed at their domestic, at their own national audience. And I'm remembering uh, Richard Pena was talking about the fact that it started also the Eastern European films we're starting that way too. There really wasn't a domestic market for those films and they were all being made and financed and being made for the, for the international festival circuit. So I'm wondering if, if, if that's something, is that a change in what we're seeing in, in this generation of international filmmakers coming on that they are making their films for a different audience than their predecessors were uh, generations earlier? I think we all could say a little bit of something. I, I think that it's another, it's a great question, but there's, there's a way in which I think when you look at the expanse of time, there's a bunch of different answers in there. I do think that there, there, there might be some films in here that are indicative of great films of the last 20 years that are maybe somewhat made for an international audience, that are made with a kind of international circuit of, of, of uh, film audiences and filmmakers and universities, whatever, like there's a circuit there that there, there may have been a, a welcome audience for some of this work beyond the national context. But I also think that within this expanse you have things like Funny Haha, which is not made for a festival audience because there was no festival track record for films like that. You know, there was a real discernible moment where a festival started programming films like that. Um, so I, it's hard to say that that's a film, like it's an American film that was actually not made for a festival. I think that's actually almost hermetic in the way that that film was made and how it was perceived it might be received. Um, so I think it, this group of time, I think, in, contains a lot of answers um, in terms of that. I think a lot of national cinemas tend to develop their own ticks um, over time. Um, we, we all watch a lot of films and sometimes you just know when that acoustic guitar is going to drop. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, in, in, in an American indie film. So I think something that, that's just one, one particular example, but you know, the, the, the film we closed BAM Cinema Fest this year was a film called Delo Mio, which is a Dominican uh, American film, which was beautiful. It was 70 minutes long. The first time I watched it, I was sat on edge thinking, when's the acoustic guitar, when's something going to happen? that aligns it with this very kind of mm -hmm. stylistic trap that a lot of American indies fall into, feeling that they have to be a certain way to get a level of success. And every national cinema has its own kind of mirror. So something that I think distinguishes these films is that none of them have fall into any of those mm -hmm. ticks or traps. You know, they're all doing their own thing, which sometimes, when, when they're too successful, they influence the other ticks that you see later. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the certain shots that recur in a lot of European art house cinema, um, the behind the, the tight, behind the head, like tracking shot, um, the, the look into the 
I'm looking at you for dramatic effect, <laughs> straight down the lens and then the cut to black. You know, th th that, those kind of endings that you see constantly. Um, so something that distinguishes these films is they don't have any of that, but they do maybe influence in certain ways. Completely unrelated. I'm wondering why Garden State is not in this program. <laughs> yeah, Florence, what's, what's up? Shins <laughs> <laughs> changed my life, so I'm... We were going to do an extra night with public voting, <laughs> and we ended up not having space. So we did this for the mixtape instead, which was also double features, um, but not just debuts. Yeah. It was more pairing an older film and a newer film, and that's where we should, uh, sorry uh, to bother you, um, as opposed to the debuts. So. Yeah, yeah I'll think of uh, Garden State for you guys next time. <laughs> <laughs> private, private screening. Yeah. Um, well, I think that probably runs to the end of our time. Uh, one more question, yeah. In the, in the, if you just wait for it. It's okay, I don't need the mic. Um, so we oh, can, we, we recorded actually. Well, so yeah, yeah. So yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for the talk, guys. I don't need the mic, trust me. Um, so, in the interest of uh, bending the boundaries, so to speak, uh, what are your favorite film debuts? of all time and why, respectively. And if you can't pick one, just pick one. I respect that question. That's yeah, pretty that's a good hardcore. Question. I like that. In the, in the interest of time, I'll give a very quick answer. Um, I, I think a film called An Oversimplification of Her Beauty by Terence Nance. We have a fan in the house, <laughs> um, which speaks to a lot of the things we've yeah. spoken of. It's very personal. It's it's very porous between documentary and narrative and animation, and it's tapped into this whole lineage of, of black artistic expression, whether it's Barclay Hendricks or George Clinton or whatever. It's this incredible world unto itself. And you've been able to track his development as a filmmaker through the many shorts he's made and, and random acts of flyness, the HBO show. He's just tragically been taken off the Space Jam um, sequel. And I'm being deadly serious about this, yeah. Um, he's been replaced by Malcolm D. Lee, who's a fine filmmaker in his own right, but it won't be half that the product. Uh, Terrence had been working on that for a long time. Um, so just in terms of seeing something so expressive and, and fully formed, I think that would be my answer. That's a good answer. Awesome. I just want to dive in the I, deep I end. might go with Mysterious Subject at Noon, uh, which I just yeah. talked about. I think it's... I mean, I didn't really think about preparing before you asked the question, but it's, <laughs> it's definitely one that really moved me when I saw it, always stayed with me, and... and, and um, really explored different boundaries of cinema. Um, and I love storytelling in, in general, but I don't like um, straight narrative. So it was just perfect for me. <laughs> I don't know if I've lived on this earth long enough <laughs> to comment on all time. Um, I think my choices off the top of my head, it might be a little cliche, but it would be Appu, um, the Appu trilogy. So Pathar Panchali would be probably my favorite debut of all time. It, yeah, I mean, it's a classic and it's it's kind of remarkable for a first film. I think all of us can probably agree on that and it doesn't really get any better with for debuts, so. Yeah. I'm like lightheaded with nerves. I have no idea how to answer this question. Yeah, in the I, I mean, Garden State? <laughs> Citizen Kane. <laughs> Shadows. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah, I, yeah no, I, I kept it too like the debuts of the 21st century. Yeah, that's it a was good just like too much. Yeah, I will. I would go with Les Saniga probably, but yeah. even even then, I, I I feel like I'm making one of the other films cry. So I don't. <laughs> um, but uh, I think that's all the time we have for the talk. But uh, thank all of you for coming out, and thank you so much to our guests. You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast with music by Greg Einge. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comet is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comet has featured in-depth features, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomet.com to purchase a print or digital subscription to Film Comet or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, or Kindle.